it's an interesting thing, you know, from Pythagoras onwards. Pythagoras and his schools, secret schools, really, because you had to apply to join and have a code of silence for a few years before you were allowed into the inner chambers or the inner secrets of the society. And part of that was to do with their purpose, which was revolution. Revolution was to be spread in ancient times through recruitment of certain youngsters who could keep secrets and who would be tested and would be put on from there to travel elsewhere and spread the word. We'll be back with more after these messages. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt, cutting through the Matrix. And I was jumping from this big green movement we have today, coupled with, of course, the Green Party, because green, green is green, they say, on the far side of the hill. And as the old song used to go. And it's very, very old because Pythagoras, who also used numbers coupled with letters, as did the Chaldeans, and even in the Hebrew alphabet, and in an English one too, all use these little codes that they have, and colors also, as far back as Pythagoras were used. The colors of her yellow or gold were the sun, those in the light, the illumined ones. And so these two talk about golden thighed Pythagoras, etc. Meaning he was, and they didn't mean the thigh either, by the way, they were rather polite in those days. And the later censors made sure they kept polite by calling it the thigh. Same in the Old Testament, when they swore oaths on each other's thighs. It wasn't the thigh, of course. It was on your generative forces, we should say. So green is used. And we'll notice, too, in the conservative parties worldwide, they always use blue for their ties. Although sometimes even they will use red when they're pushing part of a revolutionary agenda, or they're progressive, as like they call themselves now. And labor generally took red. That's why the communists took the red as well for their, for their star. And now we have the green, because these are all Masonic lodges at the top. And each lodge was much like the various Catholic institutions that they had down through the centuries for monks. Each monk had a, or, or type of school had a speciality. Some were into the law, like the, the, the Dominicans. They were into dominion. And then you had other ones also into factions of the law, which were the sons of edict or ben edicts, benedicts. Everything is part of a system of control on a large scale, unknown to the public, of course, who only see the outer facade of holy men. And even going as far back as Sumer, we find the same kind of things. The priests even there in Sumer, five, 6,000 BC, were trained in the special areas, even real estate and corporate law. They dealt with all imports and exports to the country and all goods and all things that were sold within, even down to what we call today a value-added tax. So there's nothing new under the sun, as they say. It's just that the public not taught their histories. They're entertained after they've been indoctrinated into whatever the present society wishes them to know. I think it was Charles Fort that once said, we're farmed 
and he's quite right, we're farmed. Even, even now with the dehumanization, and that happens once you knock down life from being sacred, all the pillars follow in, in, uh, one after the other, and the pantheon roof falls in eventually, because you've you got to have all the pillars up to keep it all strong. One goes down and they all topple, and that's the name of the game today, because we're harvested, and even our body parts are harvested. Farming terms, farming terms are used on us because you see we're the animals. At one time, it had been a horror show to use such terms on people. Never mind the businesses that would run them, they'd have been lynched or even suggesting they do that. But today, we're harvested. And in Britain, there's even a law going through, they'll try and get through it if they passed it yet, uh, to put everyone down as a donor, whether you, you want to or not. You're a donor. Now, if that becomes law, uh, then you certainly are property. I think we should understand that first and foremost, you are property. Because if you've no right and say over your own body and what happens to it, then that means someone owns it. And you'll find that the corporate state owns it. But that's how far down the ladder we've gone, and now they're chipping babies' heels in some hospitals, and they're chipping the elderly, and now they're going for the prisoners. In Britain, too, they're, they're passing this law to chip the prisoners. And these tiny little chips are followed by satellite tracking. So you forget the little passive chips that's out the window and in with the new, which is not new at all, the passive ones were just getting us trained to accept them in the first place because we don't get spooked when they give us the whole package deal at once. They get you ready for it piece by piece by piece. That's how you train a herd of animals. Otherwise, they'd all run away. Every farmer knows this. We're treated like animals on an incredible basis every day by the media. And the media is the big arm of the system of conology, as I like to call it. Their job is to con you every step of the way in every facet of life. Governments and this system and the real government behind it could not get its way without the aid, the complete aid of mainstream media. It's an essential arm of government. Now there's a, a little blog here. It's from Mark Morano at epw.senate.gov. And this one is to do with the, the, the con about the environment. It says here, this is December the 11th, 2007. Skeptical scientists urge world to have the courage to do nothing at UN conference. This is Bali, Indonesia. An international team of scientists skeptical of man-made climate fears promoted by the United Nations and former Vice President Al Gore, I call him the allegory, decided on Bali this week to urge the world to have the courage to do nothing in response to UN demands. Lord Christopher Monckton a UK climate researcher had a blunt message for UN climate conference participants on Monday. Climate change is a non-problem. The right answer to a non-problem is to have the courage to do nothing. 
Moncton told participants. The UN conference is a complete waste of our time and your money, and we should no longer pay the slightest attention to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Moncton added. Moncton also noted that the United Nations has not been overly welcoming to the group of sceptical scientists. Now, don't see the public too, they hear all this massive propaganda on a daily basis, and it's all put out by the same United Nations approved scientists. They make their living, you understand. These scientists come out of university, and they all want to get their names in the history books as inventing or discovering something. If they can't do that, they want a lifelong career on some agenda or other. And this is how they do it, a lifelong career, just like priests in ancient times when they used to get together at, at major conferences and, and discuss for months on end how many angels could stand on the head of a pin. You see, this is equivalent, all this, this nonsense with uh, the planet and so on and global climate change and carbon emissions and, and on and on it goes. It's all the same technique that's been used again. This is the substitute for previous chronologies. It says here, UN organizers refused my credentials and appeared desperate that I should not come to this conference. They've also made several attempts to interfere with their public meetings, Moncton explained. It's a circus here, agreed Australian scientist Dr. David Evans. Evans is making scientific presentations to delegates and journalists at the conference revealing the latest peer-reviewed studies that refute the United Nations climate claims. This is the most lavish conference I have ever been to, but I am only a scientist, and I actually only go to the science conferences, Evans said, noting the luxury of the tropical resort. They always have that in lovely exotic places, these big conferences, don't they? And it says, an analysis by Bloomberg News on December the 6th found government officials and activists flying to Bali, Indonesia, for the United Nations meeting on climate change will cause as much pollution as 20,000 cars in a year. Very true. Evans, a mathematician who did carbon accounting for the Australian government, recently converted to a sceptical scientist about man-made global warming after reviewing the new scientific studies. We now have quite a lot of evidence that carbon emissions definitely don't cause, cause global warming. We have the missing human signature in the atmosphere. We have the IPCC models being wrong. That's what they use for all their computer simulations, etc., you, you get in what you, f you you get out from it what you feed into it, and of course you can predict anything that way. So, and we have the lack of a temperature going up the last five years, Evans said in an interview with the Inhofe EPW press blog. Evans authored a November 28, 2007 paper called "Carbon Emissions Don't Cause Global Warming." Evans touted a new peer-reviewed study by a team of scientists appearing in the December 2007 issue of the International Journal of Climatology of the Royal Meteorological Society, which found warming is naturally caused and, and shows no human influence. Most of the people here at the UN conference have jobs that are very well paid, very, very true, and they depend on the idea that carbon emissions cause global warming. They're not going to be very receptive to the idea that, well, actually the science has gone off in a different direction, a direction Evans explained. So, you see, uh, this again can be found. This whole climate change was dreamed up a long time ago, and it's admitted to that it was dreamed up by the guys who dreamed it up. 
because that's the book, The First Global Revolution, printed in the early 90s, where they tell you right in there, the founders and their authors of the book tell you, the think tank at Rome, the Club of Rome, who published the book, they tell you that they dreamed up that whole idea back in the 70s when they were looking for an enemy to unite the planet, like a warfare scenario where we all work together and get great things done. So they hit on the idea of global warming and blaming the public. So we'd all have to succumb to this new priesthood who would be very authoritarian over the top of us. We'll be back with more after the following messages. Does it do any good 
like being out there by yourself with a sign. Like I, I kind of got a thrill out of the fact that hopefully Giuliani driving by in his bus mm -hmm. saw me there. But I mean, does does it work? Does it do anything, or am I wasting my time? <laughs> Uh, one person really it, it doesn't do anything what it can do if you're in the right places is, is inform yourself because some of them will stop and talk to you occasionally and they, they give you little clues about things which you would never suspect including uh, the type of language they use which again is all higher higher Masonic type coding which they, they give out in public if you understand what they're actually saying um, uh, but uh, it's the same in the Canadian Parliament. There's people who have demonstrated on the steps of the Parliament and they've been informed that what they're complaining about is all the wrong things because the Parliament is, is simply run by high masonry at the top. And, and there's certain people there who are never the number one guy, the, the Prime Minister. It's always someone else in the Cabinet who really runs the show. And it's no different wherever you go. But sometimes they will stop and talk to you personally because it's a personal education you're after. Right. Uh, one other thing is, uh, I see that the Prime Minister of England is talking about a new world order now, and it just seems like with the economic <laughs> collapse, yeah. the economic collapse going on, if, if that's part of the reason he's coming out openly like this. Yes, they're talking now. He was over in India and promising them billions of, of pounds to and foreign aid to bring them up to scratch with a new economy and all the rest of it. And he's talking about internationalism and, and globalization and so on and so on. So, I mean, there are, this is a crucial phase that they're at right now. That's why there's so much propaganda hitting us from so many angles. Uh, as they've, they believe they've destroyed the old society, they've, they've put the, the, the last of it into the ground. That's the, the eradication of family, um, interpersonal relationships are almost gone. Most people communicate electronically, in fact, they don't even need people. Uh, they don't even want to see real people, uh, and uh, and, when you, and so they've eradicated the old structure in order to bring in the new, which they've already planned. The great architect plans in advance before he knocks down the old building, and so right. the old, the new society is all ready to, to come into force. And they know too there will be a kickback uh, from different segments within society because of the massive uh, difference uh, or difference in life they're going to have to lead shortly. They, they're ready. To, to deal with that with brute force and high technology. Uh, they've been preparing for this for many, many years, and they do expect a massive backlash within especially the United States and parts of Europe. Uh, Alan, how come, like after watching your DVD, you talk about the elite working together. How come the King of France and, and what was it, Charles of England, how come they were killed then? I don't, I un don't understand well, so sometimes, sometimes you would get the oddball that wasn't quite psychopathic enough, and oh, and and sometimes too you'd have one that really thought he was the supreme deity, the ultimate king, uh, the sun god, as they called him. You know. Oh yeah. And it's the uh, same with Ronald Reagan. When he got into office, he went off to Helsinki. They'd always go off to Helsinki for the first meeting. And Ronald Reagan promised them that to change the whole world and benefit everybody uh, through financing from the U.S. And he wasn't supposed to say that. He went off his script, so when he went back, they shot him just to remind him that he really wasn't the boss. Wow. Well, hey, thanks, Alan. And your DVD's great. And uh, I'm waiting for you to put something else out. So thank okay. You. Thanks for calling. Back with more after these messages. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. 
Hi folks, Alan Watt back, cutting through the matrix, and it's quite the tangled web they've woven for us, and most people are stuck on it right now. Remember, when you're on the web, eventually the spider comes along to eat you, that's the purpose of it. Now I've got Tom in Massachusetts, are you there, Tom? Yes, Alan. How are you? Fine, and you? I'm doing not so bad. That's good. First of all, I want to express my uh, sincere thanks and appreciation for all the time and effort that you've put into uh, all your research and that you've made this available to the public. It's, uh, it's really appreciated. I, uh, I really want to thank you for that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an ongoing thing. It certainly does take a, more time in the day than you can spare. <laughs> oh, yeah. I noticed that uh, earlier in the talk you had made reference to the priests of Sumer, and I'm just wondering, in your research, uh, is this basically where you found that the dead end uh, hits uh, so far as the beginnings of civilization? Or do you, uh, do you feel or uh, have found that uh, civilization has actually um, been in existence Before. longer than that in other forms? Yeah, there's no doubt it was there from other forms. Sumer simply didn't develop as such uh, or evolve and, and trial and error and all the rest of it. It kind of arrived on the spot from the highlands to the northeast. And uh, we know that they came down, they initially built, uh, it was post and beam construction houses by, with wood. So they were used to that by living in the highlands. However, they brought a whole system with them. And in no time at all, they had this pantheon of gods, which was really, again, part of the system with the priesthoods accordingly matched. And they ran this whole commercial system, and most of their produce was going to India. So we know that they, were, that they had the idea of this system, including even the weights and measures, uh, which we still use today um, for their produce and the weighing of their precious metals. Uh, they used to use the, the, the raw powder for silver, uh, and they'd weigh it out. And that's how they, they, they use for commerce. But India was the biggest trading partner, and it simply was on the, the go too quickly uh, to evolve out of trial and error. And so we know now, even through archaeology, there was a previous civilization even beneath that, that those trade routes, and now they're calling the Harappians. Uh, so mankind is far, far, far older than we are led to expect, and we have gone through different uh, ages, as it's called. So I think... There's some more truths in, in the Vedas of India because they go back millions of years with civilizations. Wow. Now, insofar as the uh, the establishment of the secret societies, the Freemasons, the Rosicrucians, the Illuminati, and that, such as uh, Benjamin Franklin, Jefferson, John Dee, and Francis Bacon, uh, why have they con why did they continue to devote their entire lifetimes working towards the completion of this? Uh, this great work, even though they wouldn't be able to see the end result. They basically went to their graves mm -hmm. uh, knowing that they had worked on this project, but it, never, it didn't come to fruition during their lifetimes. I mean, were they promised some type of uh, reward life in an afterlife? Or? Life extension was, was the first part. Uh, life extension was one of the things, the few things that even the Rosicrucians allowed the public to know. That was to attract people into it. Uh, that those that served it well would have, uh, and prosperity, of course, prosperity was another thing. So life extension and prosperity was pretty well guaranteed if you served them well for the great work. So that's, that was quite the impetus in those, those days when poverty was, was uh, sort of such terrible squalor. Yeah. So these people basically went to their graves with, with probably no reward, but just that hope it was so fervent and they had probably had it uh, 
really inculcated in them, maybe through the um, through the secret religion or whatever. That uh, it's a religion, no doubt. Uh, they did tend. Some of them did tend to believe. See, they're allowed to believe what they want, really, in a sense. However, some of them also go traditionally along with the reincarnation theory. Uh, that that uh, just like the ancient Roman elite did, and the Greeks before them, because it was the same bunch who moved into Rome. Um, they believed that their own spirits would reincarnate into the same family lineages and hence the need to always have the perfect bodies. So they, they married their relatives to try and ensure that their own spirits would reincarnate into their own family dynasties. Hmm. So how would they manifest, how would their personalities be manifested at some point in the future? Evidently they wouldn't. It's just the fact that they felt that probably their their descendants of progeny would be carrying on, I guess, part of them, and that's about it. Well, they also, they also believed they were far superior physically because of, of special selection of the breeding partners, you see. Hmm. That's, that's why Charles Darwin and, and many others uh, just married into the same family lineages for five, six, seven generations. Wow. Yeah, they, they, they truly do believe. They've always been into eugenics, and that's from the most ancient times. That's what kings and queens were into. They didn't marry because they fancied someone or, or, or because they were horny. They, they married people because the priests matched them up for the right kind of progeny that they wished to have. Oh. Okay, so, you, so see, Plato went into it in the Republic, the whole, the whole breeding process for aristocracy, and that's how he rationalized why they were superior over the masses, is, is because they, they had their wives selected for them. Intelligence, cunning, ruthlessness, and, and the, the, the proof that their family had succeeded in business over, over a few generations, that was the proof or the qualifications necessary, the credentials for, for marriage to a similar type person. So psychopathy can be bred in from generation to generation. You breed out certain other traits, like being a nice person, you'll, you'll get stood on, you won't get to the top. If you're cruel and ruthless and you marry a, a similar person who's cruel and ruthless from a, a wealthy dynasty too, uh, then there's a good chance that, that your progeny will have the same traits as you do. So the reality is then we probably won't see a, a clone of Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin, but would probably see... Uh, their same personality traits just manifested in their descendants of today, then. Is that about it? There's no doubt. Uh, this is well, it's well shown, actually, as I say, down through. That's why lineages are kept with, with such accuracy amongst the top elite. They go back thousands of years, some of them. Wow. I mean, it's so important to them. And you will find maybe every third, fourth um, generation, you'll get someone who's almost identical to great-grandfather, and his personality traits and, and his likes, dislikes and, and ruthlessness. Or it could be the other way, they might get a throwback where someone's pretty nice and easy going and he won't be let in on the secrets. It might be his brother who's pulled up the ladder. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. But yeah, tra traits can be bred in and or out of people the same as animals. If you want a good, a good pet, you get a Labrador. If you want a good a good attack dog, you, you get a German Shepherd or Pit Bull or something that can be trained. Um, so it's all to do with, with breeding in or out of, of traits that you desire or, or who, which are undesirable. So I guess that's what you were referring to the, for the, to the last caller, with the last caller when you mentioned about the, um, the fact that um, sometimes somebody has to get uh, taken care of because they are manifesting the psycho, psychopathy of that's their... Right. Uh, that's their, right. That's right. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, some of them realized what was happening. Some of them, I mean, even uh, uh, um, 
JFK, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and um, we know that too that he gave speeches about the secret societies. He knew they were dominating the U.S. Congress and Senate, uh, and he gave speeches about them, trying to expose them. Uh, so, uh, meanwhile, he belonged to an elite family. Well, so I guess it doesn't pay to get religion even when you're on the top. Yeah, well, it certainly doesn't pay to have a conscience <laughs> when you know the agenda. That's right. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, I guess you might have some other callers, so I'd just like to say thanks for your uh, your responses to the uh, questions, and I uh, look forward to continuing in my listening to you. Okay. Thanks All for right, calling. All right, we'll see you. Yep, bye-bye. Uh, uh, Keith from Florida, are you there, Keith? Yeah. Hello? Hi, Alan. How are you? Not so bad. Good. Hey, uh, you mentioned Helsinki, Finland, um, and Ronald Reagan going over there, and it just made me... Um, Nostalgic. Last year I was there for about three months, and uh, it was really a really a strange experience. There was a real heavy Illuminati presence, you might say. And uh, I was just wondering, you know, if you if you how much you know about uh, Helsinki and its relationship to like maybe Swedish fee, uh, Freemasonry. And I was wondering if you've seen the film. This is, it was circulating in Helsinki when I was there of uh, Hitler visiting uh, Mannerheim. Uh, he brought him a couple of cars and was trying to kiss his butt, trying to get Finland over on uh, the German side in World War II. I was wondering if you're familiar with that. Yeah, I, I, am, I am too, yeah. But uh, it's so odd too because uh, that country has been a thorn in the side of uh, uh, various powers over mm-hmm. the last hundred years or so because they tend not to give in as a people, uh, although some of the elite definitely run the country for them. But uh, that's, again, uh, there's a big global meeting there every year, uh, all coming from the Helsinki Agreement. Yeah. And uh, the big boys go there. That's, a, that's their kind of christening into it, their baptism, uh, into being the big boy when you become elected president or prime minister. But unfortunately, Ronald Reagan didn't. Uh, he thought he really was the, the president for, for a while until he came back and he was shot. Not fatally, but it's enough to remind him that he should stick to his script. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, uh, Mannerheim, who was the field marshal at the time for Finland, was of uh, Swedish and Germanic royal blood. And it's interesting, if you look at the footage, uh, if you look at Mannerheim and the way he's actually, he actually, he, he and his officers are sort of, uh, they're sort of amused by Hitler. And you sort of get the impression that here's this lower caste, uh, you know, former uh, artillery corporal or whatever he was during World War One, and, and a real uh, sort of a pawn of the of the uh, of the big scene, going there to uh, you know ask mm-hmm. you know this uh, this royal figure for uh, his for his help. And I was just wondering if you if you studied that that particular film at all. Have you have you gained anything from that? Not really. Um, we do know that um, the royalty. Uh, you find all of the royalty across the whole of Europe and Scandinavia are interlinked from the same family dynasties. They've all intermarried down through the many, many centuries, and they've never lost their, their, their control over their countries either, um, except for, again, like the, the, the oddballs that stood up and said no to something and uh, had their heads chopped off. Right. But uh, the rest of them went along with it because uh, they had the right stuff. They, they know that revolutions are not to aid the people. The revolutions are intended to go along with an agenda, which they and their high priests have already decided upon. Uh, that's the beauty of the dialectic, that those who lead the revolutions never see the big picture. 
they never see the whole picture. They only see what's in it for them. They see the goal that they want to achieve. And they're always looking for a utopia where the elite already have planned their own utopia, which doesn't include uh, those that lead the rebellions. Yeah, very good, very good. Well, thank you very much for, uh, for, the, for the answer, and I uh, appreciate your call. show. Thank you. Thanks for Yeah, it is important to study the places where they have these particular meetings, and you'll see the same thing. You see, this was all started off by the Royal Institute for International Affairs, and they had specific meetings in different countries, the Marrakesh meetings and so on, to do with financing and all that kind of stuff. Every place that they go has a significance to them. And whenever they go back and deal with a specific part of their agenda, they'll go back to the initial country they used for that part of the agenda for the first time and have the Ottawa agreements and things like that going back for the last almost 100 years. So it's important to see where they, where they go and what particular meetings they're having there. It's, again, specialized areas of controlling the whole world, economics, population, um, resources, and so on. Each place has got its own special place in that. And it's almost like Israel, too, because in the 60s, uh, and in the newspapers across the world, they announced a meeting there for the United Nations, and it was to do with controlling the water of the world uh, around the year 2000 or so. And lo and behold, it happens, this sudden emergency for water, and guess what's going to happen? It's all going to be privatized because the public can't manage it properly, and they'll have to privatize it and own the whole world's water supply and sell it to us for big bucks. Uh, everything's planned way, way in advance, generally before we're born. We live through the changes, and, and because no one tells us, it's all a con job, and we adapt to it thinking it's all quite natural. And it never occurs to most people that are being lied to, why would such, such a massive media go to such lengths to continuously lie to you? Well, that's exactly what they do do. It's quite simple. That's their job, is to con you. You're educated, which is indoctrination, and then the media takes over, and in entertainment too. There's hardly a movie out there you can watch without messages politically correct messages getting inserted into your brain and also predictive programming, getting you used to an idea that you never thought about before so that when the real thing is mentioned in the media as going to be put into law, you'll think it's quite a natural progression. And meanwhile, you haven't done any thinking on it at all. It's just little parts of it that's been inserted into your mind, predictive programming, and it's quite a, a, an advanced science. So we're, we're simply rolling along through an agenda with techniques being used on all of society, a standardized technique too, that's the whole thing about the United Nations and UNESCO. UNESCO, uh, the first head of it, remember, for the United Nations, for the educational uh, part of the United Nations, uh, was Aldo Huxley's brother, Sir Julian Huxley. And read the statements that he made, because he, he put right on the line what his function was to be, the indoctrination of a whole world's youth into a new global system, but not for freedom's uh, purpose, but really uh, for the peace of those that ruled the country. They're betters, in other words, but to help uh, it, it, it make it easier for their betters to rule them. That was the whole point of it. And that's what the, the point of, the, of all education really is, is to make it easier for you to be managed by your betters, those ones who come out of special wombs, and they're sinless, they don't have sins, you see, or anything like that. And they're, they're, they're sort of holier than thou, 
the special people that just happen to be there, born into the right families with the right wealth and the right positions and get the right education. And we're trained to think that they are special. And unfortunately, the public, even the poor public, tend to grovel at the sight and and in the presence of wealth. They grovel. It's rather disgusting to see ordinary people doing that, but they do it. And that's what all that Hollywood nonsense is about, too, with the stars and uh, the, the glamour and the wealth being flashed in front of you is to dazzle you and make you uh, 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 salivate at the thought of being so rich and living in such a luxurious lifestyle. It's a con job. And if the public at the bottom just got it through their heads that they have one life to lead, one life they could be sure of because you wake up as you every day. One day you won't wake up at all. But at the moment you wake up as you, and you better use it. it means, that means you use your mind to its fullest extent. Don't waste it. Use it for yourself. That's the most precious gift that you have. I often thought that to start harvesting brains, even though there's so many people out there, it'll be very, very expensive because it'll say in the papers, like new, never used. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. Most people don't use their minds at all. They simply parrot their indoctrinations their whole lives. And whether that can be achieved, I have no idea. I have no idea at all. Some say it's always been this way. The vast majority of the public are living in the darkness. Who knows? I'll be back with more after the following messages. to understand. 
like Plato said, he said, if they were to allow something at the grassroots level, a cultural change to emerge and take off, it would upset the whole apple cart with unforeseen consequences. Today they would call it the butterfly effect. And therefore they can't allow anything truly to emerge from the grassroots and to flourish that would cause change. The elite would lose control. And it's so important for them to maintain control because they believe they're the only ones who are deemed intelligent enough to have control in the first place. They have, they have no respect for the ordinary people at the bottom whatsoever. In fact, they see themselves as a separate species. And I'm not joking about that. They have always been eugenicists at the top. Eugenics goes back for thousands and thousands, perhaps millions of years. Where the elite had royal blood, as they called it, royal blood. The blue bloods, as it was termed. And the rest did not, obviously. Nobility could not just be bestowed, it had to be inherited. You could gradually work your way in by accepting marriage to, to a woman who was from nobility your offspring would have the chance to go on higher than you would. That's still the rule today. Even in higher masonry, and you find that in some of the, the clues that Benjamin Franklin leaves you with because he joined the Hellfire Club, and they had their own little bordello attached to the Masonic Lodge, the particular lodge. But these were not ordinary prostitutes. They were very selective, specific gene-carrying types. And the honour was to be get to be mated with one and have an offspring from that woman. That was the honour of High Masonry at that time. From Hamish and myself, up in Ontario, Canada, it's good night, and may your God or your gods go with you. <laughs>